Well, good morning, New Life East. Those of you who are here in the room, those of you that are gathered online, would you stand with me this morning as we confess the creed together, as we state together with one voice what we believe, what Christians always, everywhere at all times, have always believed as we prepare our hearts to open the scriptures this morning. The words will be here on the screen. Let's say this together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, and for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. But on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no ends. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, we come to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one whose word spoke everything into existence, the one who has the words of life. And we ask that you would speak to us this morning and let your life bloom in us individually and collectively as your people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you all this morning. As Pastor Andrew said, my name is Jason Jackson. I serve as the associate pastor at New Life Downtown and have the honor and privilege of being out here with you all today. So Andrew... Colin, team, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to be here with all of you. We're continuing our series this summer uh, that we're calling How Do I, a series where we're walking through that wonderful book of Proverbs. And really what we're doing in this series is we're exploring the good life. What does it mean to live well in God's good world? How is it that the people of God are called to live in this space that God has created and given to us? And today, our sermon topic is, how do I enjoy my life? I'm a father of three girls. I have three daughters, 12, 9, and 7, Cora, Avi, and Lila. And when I was putting together the sermon a couple of weeks ago, and I was working on it late one night, the kids were supposed to be in bed, but my middle daughter, Avi, she tends to be the one that 
bedtime just takes a little bit longer. Anybody have a kid like that, that it just doesn't matter, it just seems to always be elongated by something that was forgotten. And so she came into the bedroom and I was sitting in a chair working on the sermon and she turns and she looks at me and she says, Dad, what are you preaching on? And I said, well, I'm, the sermon's going to be called, How Do I Enjoy My Life? And she stops. She looks at me and says, Dad, I want to hear that sermon. <laughs> I think everybody wants to hear that sermon. This is the first time in her whole life she's ever said that to me. But there's something about that topic that sparks something inside of us. Even from the time that we're little kids, there's a desire in us that we want to experience joy. We want to have fun. We want to suck the marrow out of life in some capacity and find our lives filled with joy. And yet we know that the older that we get, the harder it is to find. That joy starts to feel elusive in our lives. I think this is why sometimes when you talk to parents, you ask them, what do you, what do you really hope for for your kids? Like, what, what's that great desire inside of your heart? But sometimes the thing that comes out first is, I just want my kids to be happy. Then I remember thinking as a, as a young man, as a new believer, it's like, well, that just kind of seems kind of shallow. Like, really, that, that's all you want is for them to be happy? But I think the older you get, you start to realize that joy is not a guarantee in life. We know a lot of people that grow up and they experience maybe a lot of success. They have a lot of things that go well, and yet they find themselves miserable. There's something about their life that has sort of sucked all the joy out of them. Life is hard. We're guaranteed in life that we're going to experience suffering, that we're going to have obstacles, that there's going to be challenge, that there's going to be difficult days, that there are hard things ahead. Joy itself is not a guarantee for us. But at the same time, when we come to a church service and someone says what we're going to talk about today is enjoying life, that seems a bit strange to us. On one hand, we're like, there's serious business to be taken care of. Like, don't you know what's going on in the world? We've got to preach the gospel. We've got people that need to come to Jesus. We've got serious work that we need to go. Haven't you watched the news? Pastor, why are you talking about this? It seems so frivolous in light of what we see on the news or read in the paper, for those of you that still read papers. And maybe even more strange is that inside and outside of the church, we often do not equate Christians with joy. This is not sort of a common association that people make when they think about the church, when they think about people that follow Jesus. Oftentimes the association is not an association that says, oh, that is a joyful people. I don't know if you know this or not, but we're not necessarily known for our parties. Strangely, Jesus was, but his people are not. Jesus was known as someone who is partying with all of the wrong people all of the time. If you look through the Gospels, and yet his people were like not known for that same kind of thing. In fact, Christians oftentimes, especially in some streams and some circles, have been, no has been known as those who are just against things. Against things that might bring people joy. The Christians are people that don't play cards and don't dance and don't go to movies and don't read fiction books. At least not ones with Harry Potter in the title of them. Right, like there, there's this againstness to 
Christians to the world and seemingly to people outside the church to things that might bring people joy, that might just be lighthearted and fun. And yet when we open the scriptures, we actually see a very different picture emerge, especially in the wisdom literature, especially in books like Proverbs. One of the things that we see as we open the book of Proverbs is that wisdom made the world with joy and for our enjoyment. That wisdom made the world with joy and for our enjoyment. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom oftentimes gets personified, that it gets cast as a character in the story. And sometimes it's a parent talking to a child, and we see a father talking to a son or a, a mother talking to her child, and wisdom gets personified in this way. Oftentimes it gets personified as lady wisdom. In chapter 8, wisdom gets personified as the very agent that God uses to create the worlds. And we see this beautiful sort of exposition about the very nature of the universe. And it says this, wisdom, I was beside him as a master of crafts, and I was having fun, smiling before him all the time and frolicking with his inhabited earth and delighting in the human race. There is joy in the very creation of the world that when God created this place, he took great delight in doing it and looking at it and seeing his finished product. He fashioned it and then he gazed upon it And a smile lit up his face. And he said, oh, that's good. Well done. (laughs) That is good. And in doing so, I think his own joy was actually ingrained in the very fabric of the universe. That his joy became part of the DNA of the world. That it's ingrained in it. Why? Why would God do that? I think it was simply so he could share it with us. That he ingrained his joy in the world so that he could share his joy with us and so that we could enjoy everything that he made. After all, our first home was a place called Eden. Eden in the original language means pleasure or delight. The very place that we were intended to live and spend our days with God and one another was known as a garden of pleasure or a garden of delight. In this place, there was more food than we needed. There was splendor that served absolutely no purpose. There were unnecessary luxuries. There were things that were put in there simply to bring us joy. Breathtaking sights. Like that moment when Pike's Peak is capped in white and the blue and the the sky is just that brilliant blue and you can't drive safely while you're watching it. Or those alluring sounds. We were just camping in Wyoming right by a river and sitting there at night listening to the river go as you're falling asleep thinking this sound is just beautiful or exquisite tastes like Mandy Arndt's cooking. And you're just like, oh, how did you do that? And please stop, I don't need more cookies in my life. But it's there. After all, we have bodies that were made to belly laugh. 
bodies that were made to sing and to dance. At least most of us. I have to just stay right here. Like anything more than that, and it's just embarrassing for everybody. Proverbs says this, and it's great humor, Proverbs 24, 13. says, my child, eat honey, for it's good. <laughs> Why would you eat this? Just because it's good. Because it tastes good. You put it in some tea, you put it on some bread, and it just is majestic. The honeycomb is sweet in your mouth. There is something about life that is meant to be enjoyed. But as soon as we start talking about that, a voice comes up in our minds and says, yeah, 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 yeah. But there's limits to that. We know that there's something about overindulgence that can be dangerous. Life is meant to be enjoyed, but overindulgence is dangerous. And this isn't lost on the writer of Proverbs. Just a little bit later, he says this. He says, if you find honey, eat just the right amount. Otherwise, you'll get full and vomited up. <laughs> Whoever said the scriptures weren't funny hasn't read Proverbs and seen all of these contrasts. We know that overindulgence is folly, that our delight can actually become our downfall. Now, I've never eaten too much honey in my life. I've never had a moment where I just could not stop eating honey. But there was a moment in elementary school where my family, like they had a bunch of people over and no one was monitoring the children and our intake of things. And I, I can't remember, I think it was maybe a New Year's Eve party. And at the time, I was in love with the Orange Crush soda. It's like honey. And I just kept drinking until I had one too many. And I've never been able to drink it again. <laughs> Anybody else been there where you just overindulge and you're like, I just, I can't. Now the very sight of it, the very smell. I mean, it's been 30-some years. And I, Orange Fanta, Orange, I can't do any of it. It just brings me back into that moment. And so we're meant to ask then, well, what are we to enjoy and how are we to enjoy it? What are we meant to enjoy as the people of God and how do we actually enjoy it? It's common in our culture to believe that in order to be happy, in order to enjoy life, what we need is more. That in order to actually find joy, we need more of things. There's an ad executive one time that famously said that marketing is just the organized creation of dissatisfaction. This is what the whole marketing industry is. No offense to those of you who are in marketing. That it's the organized creation of dissatisfaction. And the message that gets sent to us is that if we have more money, more fame, more power, more experiences, more gadgets, more connections, more followers, more relationships, more hookups, more whatever, that if we just have more of this, then certainly at that point we'll find joy. That joy is unlocked by having more of this. And if we don't need more, then we certainly need something different than what we have. We can't find joy in an iPhone 7. It has to be found in an iPhone 12. And only for a few more months until the iPhone 13 or 12S or whatever it is that comes out. And then suddenly it can't bring us joy anymore. We need something different. No one, none of us want two phones. Let's be honest about that. One is plenty, but it has to be the right one. And we buy into this message that we simply can't enjoy life without something, without this thing, until we get it, until we get the new thing. And we start to believe that unless something changes externally, we will never be satisfied. 
But Proverbs actually teaches us a counterintuitive way of life. Proverbs teaches us to actually savor what God has already given to us, to savor what it is that is already in our hands, what it is that the Lord has already provided for us. Proverbs 23 says this, don't long for the ruler's delicacies. Why? That food simply misleads. It actually can't provide what you think it's going to. So don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be smart enough to stop. Be smart enough to say, like, I don't actually need that. I don't need to keep going to get that. That there is a place where we have to stop and see what it is that we already have. Our longings can be misleading, especially in a world that tells us that we will find fulfillment in X, Y, or Z, and then we find that those things can't actually deliver on what they promise. We start to think, no, 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 no. If I just get a new job, then. If I can get that position, then. If I can get that house in that neighborhood with that two-and-a-half-stall garage and that really nice pergola that, Col that Colin built in the backyard, if I can get that, and it's got that view, of then it'll lock in. If I can get this or that, but then suddenly we find that those things wear out, those things become obsolete, those things have their own challenges in the midst of them, that every job has people you have to work with and work for, <laughs> and there's going to be difficulties in it. And so Proverbs tells us, stop chasing joy where it can't be found. Stop. Stop chasing joy where it can't be found. Instead, it says, drink water, Proverbs 5. Drink water from your own cistern, gushing water from your own well. I always laugh at things like this because I stop and go, well, where else are you going to drink water from? Like, if you're not going to drink water from your own cistern or from your own well, where else are you going to drink it? And the most likely answer is, well, from one of your neighbors. Well, why would you do that? Why would you go to your neighbor's house to get water out of their faucet? Like, why not drink water from your own house? And there's usually two reasons. Number one, in the ancient world, is you just don't want to dig your own well or cistern. You don't want to do the hard work and enjoy the fruits of your labor. That's one of the things that Proverbs tells us over and over and over again, that joy is found in, look what my hands have made. Look what I've produced. Look at what all of my work has gone into. And I can taste and see this fig tree that I planted that I now get to enjoy, that olive thing, this garden. Look at this and enjoy it. This heart is like, now that's just too much work. It's just easier to go and take it from somewhere else. And it's never as fully satisfying is when it comes from your own labors. The second reason we might go and drink from Sonos' cistern is that we actually believe the water's better. Like, yeah, I've got this cistern, but really, there's, I think it's flavored with lime. I need to go over there and dip out of there. But maybe, friends, God has already provided us with everything we need to quench our deepest thirsts. It's already provided it for us. Proverbs, that same passage, goes on and tells us to rejoice in the wife of your youth. In the Proverbs ideal, the spouse of our youth, is the spouse of our old age. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that story doesn't take place for everybody. There's tragic things that happen. There's 
abuse and adultery, there's early death, there's all those kind of things that can actually train wreck that story that I think is really deep desire in our hearts. Yet there's another thing that happens that train wrecks it is that we start to think when things get difficult, I'm not talking about when things get abusive, so when things get hard, that we start to think, you know what I really need is I need a different relationship. I need a different spouse, I need a different boss, I need different kids, I need different friends, I need a different church, I need a different whatever. Maybe friends, God is actually calling us to find joy in our current relationships, to find joy in the things that he's already given to us and to cultivate them and to steward them and to know that all relationships are work. Why? Because there's people involved in them. And we're all kind of a piece of work, <laughs> right? Each of us have stuff, and we're working that out, and it's being worked out in our relationships. He goes on, Proverbs 27 says, Know your flock well. Pay attention to your herds. Why? Why, Why pay attention to the flocks and the herds, the things that you already have, the possessions that are already been given to you? Because then the lambs will provide your clothes and the goats will be the price of your fields and there will be enough. There will be enough goat's milk for your food and enough for the food of your whole house and enough to even nourish the young women who get connected to your house. Proverbs tells us to pay attention to what we already have and to realize that with Jesus, it's already enough for us and for others. It's not just enough, it's more than enough. So God calls us to savor it because joy is not found in what God has given to another. Joy is found in what God's already given to us. This is where joy is found. Second thing that Proverbs teaches us is to desire life's greater goods to desire its greater goods. Proverbs is oftentimes making these comparative evaluations. We do this all the time. We say that this is better than that. Macs are better than PCs. Baseball is better than football. I'm sorry, it just is. It's God's sports. I'm convinced. in and out is better than Whataburger. Maybe, maybe some the Texans are shaking their heads at me going like, you don't even know. We make all these comparatives, comparisons all the time, but Proverbs makes deeper ones. It says, no, let me, let me talk to you about life. Proverbs 15, 16, better a little with fear of the Lord than great treasure with turmoil. Better a meal of greens. In other words, better a whole plate of kale than a plump calf with hates. I mean, it's a little harder for me to believe, but I'm trusting it. <laughs> Better kale than like a nice steak. Better a dry crust with a quiet house than a house full of feasting and quarrels. Goes on and says, better to be wise, better to be righteous, better to be humble, better to be patient, better to have self-control, better to be trustworthy, better to have a good name, better to be innocent. The Proverbs wants to remind us over and over and over again that who we are is more important than what we have. And that character, not conquests or acquisitions, is actually the key to great joy in life. That it's not getting more things or having different things that's the thing that unlocks joy for us. It's actually our character. 
It's becoming the people God intended and created us to be from the very beginning. So Proverbs tell us, tells us over and over again, don't settle for cheap thrills. Don't settle for fleeting highs. Don't settle for life's lesser joys. Don't sacrifice your integrity or your fidelity to God and to his people to chase something that can't deliver what you think it's promising. That's actually going to cause destruction in the end. It may be pleasurable for a season, but man, it has a bite on the backside and it will destroy your life. Proverbs tells us to play the long game, to sow seeds now that we'll get to reap in our 70s and 80s and 90s and 100s. To say, I'm playing the long game. I'm not looking for a quick fix of joy now. I'm looking for a joy that I'll only be able to experience at the end of a life of faithfulness. Where the people who I've loved are gathered around me in relationship. And they're echoing to me the very words that I hope to hear Jesus say, well done, dad. Well done, mom. Well done, grandma. Well done, grandpa. Thank you for living your life the way you've lived your life. Well done, friend. That's the joy that we're looking for. This is why Christians throughout the ages have practiced various forms of self-denial. Say we deny ourselves things. Well, why would you do that? We live in a culture that says, no, don't deny yourself anything. Why would you do that? We fast so that we can feast on something better. We abstain from something so that we can enjoy something greater. It's not just because we want to like punish ourselves. So we actually want to avoid that. And we want to enjoy something deeper and sweeter. There is more joy, there is greater joy, greater pleasure, greater delight at the end of 60 years of faithfulness than you'll ever find on the internet or a hookup app. There's more joy there. Why do we abstain? So that we can experience that joy that comes at the long end of cultivating faithfulness to one another. The third thing that Proverbs teaches us is this, is to, tells us to delight in doing good for others. To find delight, to find joy in doing good for others. We live in a world that tells us the first priority is to look out for number one and to get what's ours. I gotta get what's mine. I gotta get what's mine. And it begins to tell us that joy is not only found in acquisition, but also in retention. That I've gotta get mine and I've gotta keep mine. I gotta protect it from everybody else that's trying to take it. And unless I do that, I will not experience joy. And we start to put getting more and keeping more above everything else. And this is what the Proverbs say. Deceit is in the heart of those who plan evil, but there is joy for those who advise peace. Acting justly is a joy to the righteous, but it's dreaded by those who do evil. Happy are generous people because they give some of their food to the poor. 
Proverbs says, you want to know where, where great joy is found? Great joy is in being a peacemaker. Great joy is found in acting justly toward other people and establishing just communities. Great joy is found in giving generously to those who find themselves pushed to the margins. Proverbs tells us that our greatest joy is actually found in doing good, that it's not found in self-satisfying lust, but in self-giving, self-sacrificial love, that this is where joy is found. And we know that to be true because that's what Jesus showed us. Jesus showed us that the greatest joy is found in self-sacrificial, self-giving love. Hebrews says it this way, fix our eyes on Jesus, faith's pioneer and perfecter. Why? Why do we fix our eyes on him? Because he endured the cross and he ignored its shame. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus put himself through all of that? How could Jesus endure all of that? Why would he do it? And it says this, for the sake of the joy that was laid out in front of him, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Wait, for joy? He did that? See, Jesus endured all the difficulties that he endured because beyond that, he saw a great joy. What was the great joy that Jesus was seeing on the other side of the cross? It was you. It was me. It was us. It was our redemption. It was resurrection and the coming of the Spirit and new creation and bringing all things together in Himself and making all things new again. That as He looked at all of the hard things, He saw beyond them and He said, wait, 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 there's a joy out there and I can move through this in order to do good for others. And he found great joy not in living in this way of saying, I've got to get everything that's mine. I've got to keep everything that's mine. I've got to look out for number, for number one. But he said, no, 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 no. The greatest delight, the greatest joy is in giving oneself for another. And so for the great joy of bringing us into right relationship with God and one another, he endured the cross and he scorned its shame and he said, there's joy out there in doing good for others. And he calls us to do the same thing. He says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. We deny ourselves lesser goods, not just for our greater good, but for the greater good of others. It's actually in that place that we partake in life's greatest joy, which is full participation in the love of God. We know the love of God. It's been shed abroad in our hearts. We know the God who delights in doing us good. And we in turn, out of the abundance of that, delight in doing others good as well. Friends, in just a few moments, we're going to come to the table. And we're going to partake again of this meal that is a foretaste of the meal that we're going to enjoy forever in new creation with Christ. And oftentimes when we come to this meal, we come to it with a certain amount of sobriety. We recognize the seriousness of Christ's sacrifice. We remember the pain of his betrayal. We know that he sweated blood. 
We know that his body was bruised, that it was torn apart by whips. We know all that he endured. But friends, sometimes what we forget is the joy that was set before him. And I wonder, as Jesus was gathered together with his friends for his last meal before his crucifixion and resurrection, and as he grabbed those elements together and he was sharing the seriousness of that moment with them, is it possible that there was a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face? And even though he knew everything that was coming before him, he also saw you. He also saw the great work of redemption that he was going to do, that he saw the resurrection, that he saw the coming of the Spirit, that he saw the beginning of the church, that he saw his second coming and then making everything right and good and new again. Is it possible that there was great joy in the moment in the midst of all of the seriousness that he also knew was in front of him in his heart. And as we come to the table today, can we hold that joy as well? Can you look and see the face of your Savior who gives himself for you? Can you see him delighting in doing good? Delighting in doing good for you? And would that change us in such a way that we would know the great joy of participating in that and delighting in doing good to others. We're going to pray, or pray or we're going to pray a prayer of confession here. And as we pray this prayer of confession, I want you to pay close attention to the very end where we talk about delights. Let's say this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you, thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. But for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may what? Delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. Father, forgive us for the times that we have settled for lesser joys. Would you teach us to savor what we have, to desire life's greater joys, and to fully participate with you in delighting and doing good to others. And may we experience the full delight, the full joy of our salvation as we recognize that in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We are set free. We are redeemed. And we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of his fruits is joy. Let's stand and sing this morning.
Brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. Would you lift up your hearts? Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Oh, it is good and it is right to give you thanks and praise. Oh, our God. I was thinking while Jason was preaching, better a dry crust. <laughs> well, that's an easy tie-in, isn't it? Where there is peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And the miracle of this moment is so profound, though, isn't it? One of the things that the Bible does not do is it doesn't say to us when we're holding the dry crust or the meal of vegetables, the little, it doesn't say, it doesn't shake its finger at us and say, now you ought to just be happy with what you have. The promise is bigger than that. The promise is that when we partake of the little that we have by faith, it actually slides us right into the abundance of the kingdom of God. Okay? That's what this moment is. This moment is not God wagging his finger at us and going, here's a little dry crust for you and a little cup of juice and you better just like it and get over it. You know what it is? It's God saying, open the eyes of your heart. Receive this by faith and the dry crust and the little cup will become more than dry crust and a little cup. It will become a participation in the very life of the one who said, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then do you know what Jesus asked? He said, do you believe this? And so this morning you ask that of us, do we believe it? And we say this morning, Lord Jesus, give us the gift of faith. Help us believe that the little in our lives is a share in the universal kingdom if we'll have eyes to see it. Help us see that this bread and this cup is a share in the life of Christ if we'll have faith to believe it. So come, open our eyes to your wonders. And we say that on the night that he was betrayed after he had given thanks to the Lord Jesus. He took the bread and he broke it. Would you break that little wafer? And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat. This is more than bread. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. Can we take the bread together by faith? And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is more than cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And it's poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, the cup of salvation. Let's take it by faith. And now would you let gratitude rise in your heart to the Lord? Would you let worship rise in your heart to the Lord? We say, thank you, Jesus. We bless your name. Come on, let's sing our doxology together. <laughs> 